Good morning once again. All right. Well, last time we met on Sunday morning, we uh, finished the book of Joshua, which we had been in for about 28 weeks. Um, and I'm sure that you're wondering where we're going next. Are you ready? All right. Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We haven't done a gospel on Sunday mornings in a long time. Gospel of Matthew. Now, as you all know, of course, Matthew's gospel begins the New Testament canon of Scripture. Canon means those writings which are inspired by God. And Matthew forms the bridge between the Old and the New Testament. If you were to end the Old Testament in Malachi and jump over, we'll say, to Mark or even to Acts or Romans, you would be a little confused. Matthew forms the perfect bridge that bridges the Old and the New Testament together. The Greek word translated gospel, as many of you know, literally means good news. And the four gospels together are the good news about the most significant events in human history. Ready? The birth, the life, the sacrificial death, and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Folks, that's it. Okay? All of history is really his story. The most important events in all of human history are the birth, life, sacrificial death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, each of the Gospels has its own unique theme that focuses on a particular characteristic or aspect of Jesus' life and ministry. And together, because why four Gospels? Why not just one big one that combines them all together? Because they each have their own theme. They each focus on a different aspect of Jesus' life and ministry. Together, they form a picture of Jesus in, in quadraphonic, you might say. All right, uh, It gives us a, clear, a clearer, we'll never fully understand the Lord Jesus Christ until we see him face to face, but, but at least we get a more fuller understanding of who he was and what he came to do. The focus or the theme of Matthew's gospel is Jesus the Messiah, the King of Israel. That's why Matthew wrote primarily to the Jew. The theme of Mark's gospel is to present Jesus as the suffering servant. And Mark wrote his gospel primarily with the Romans in mind. Romans were very impatient people. That's why Mark's gospel is very short, very concise, very fast-moving, because he wants to just fire it out because his Roman audience tends to lose interest quickly. Luke's gospel focuses on the humanity of Jesus Christ. Luke wants to present to us the theme of Jesus as the Son of Man. And that's why he takes his genealogy back to Adam, the first man. And in Luke's gospel, more than any others, we see the humanity of Christ being spoken of, how he got tired, how he was hungry, how he had to pray, and so on. You'll find all of that wrapped up in Luke's gospel. And finally, John wants to focus on the divinity of Christ. And so he presents as his theme, Jesus, the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's John's focus, to present Jesus as the Son of God. But we're not doing John, we're doing Matthew, all right? And Matthew's book is also called the Gospel of the King. As I just said, he is primarily, but not exclusively, writing to a Jewish audience to present to Israel her long-awaited Messiah and King. And to prove to his Jewish audience that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah of Israel, the one whose coming was foretold in the Jewish scriptures, 
He quotes 16 messianic prophecies and identifies each of them with Jesus with these words. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying. You'll find that 16 times that phrase in Matthew's gospel. Because he wants to connect Jesus with the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah. Proving that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies which were spoken by the Old Testament prophets concerning the Messiah's coming. In fact, in all, Matthew quotes or alludes to the Old Testament 129 times in his gospel, more than all the other gospel writers combined. Now, let's look at the author of this gospel for a moment. Who was Matthew? Well, we've got to understand the context a little bit. At the time of Jesus' birth, Israel had been under Roman rule for about 60 years. And one of the worst things about Roman occupation was their oppressive system of taxation. Now, there were numerous taxes, but the two main ones, the two basic taxes, taxes that Rome levied was, first of all, the toll tax, which was comparable to our modern income tax, and then the ground tax, which was a property or a land tax. And Rome would actually sell at public auction the right to collect taxes in a given country, province, or region at a fixed rate for five years. And so here's a, they would put up this region for auction. Who wants to collect the taxes in this region or country? Or We want this amount from that region, a fixed amount for the five-year period. Whatever the tax collectors could gather above what Rome required for their take, they got to keep as their salary. Those who held such taxing rights were called publicani. That's why the King James translates tax collector publican. It's just speaking of one of these people that bid to collect taxes in a given area. But of course, think about this for a second, right? If somebody told you, look, you're going to collect taxes in Cook County. We want from this county X amount of dollars. Whatever you can gather above that you can keep. You think that would lead to a little corruption? A little extortion, you know? I mean, that system was rife for abuse, for excessive. It invited excessive taxation and even, as I said, extortion and left the average citizen with little or no recourse because, think about it, these tax collectors were actually independent contractors working for the Roman government. Good luck with that, right? I'm being unfairly treated by your tax collector. Well, too bad. He's working for us. Consequently, the people hated these tax collectors, especially if they were members of the community like Matthew was. Think about this, a Jew collecting taxes for Rome from his fellow Jews. Now you were not just a crook, now you were not just an extortionist, you were a traitor. So Matthew was doubly hated. But you know the tax collectors, they didn't care. Okay, They had their own little circle that they moved in, their own little crowd that they hung out with, they didn't care what you thought about them. They were making money, lots of it for themselves. Of course, in Israel, they ranked among the lowest of society, right down there with prostitutes and Gentiles. Okay. Now, we don't know much about Matthew before he responded to um, Jesus' invitation to come and be one of his disciples. And then, of course, later he was named one of the apostles. It's doubtful that Matthew was very religious, even though he was a Jew. It's doubtful because tax gatherers were ostracized. Uh, in society. If not officially, then unofficially. Many of them were forbidden from coming to synagogues. 
or even the temple. So, you know, they kind of sold their soul to the devil was the idea. And, you know, we don't want you hanging out in church anymore. All right, that was the idea. So we don't think Matthew was a very religious person. But I do think that the Lord was working on his heart long before Jesus asked him to come and follow him. I'm convinced Matthew knew who Jesus was and possibly and probably was following his ministry from a distance. I don't think we know that when Jesus called him to be a disciple, he was sitting at the tax booth. And I doubt very highly that when Jesus walked up to Matthew, that was the first time he ever laid eyes on Jesus. And when Jesus had come and follow me, that Matthew got up with a glazed look in his eye and followed Jesus like he was some kind of a zombie or robot. No, God had been working in Matthew's heart. I'm convinced of that. Look, tax collectors made a good living, as you can well imagine, okay? Extortioners do well for themselves, typically. Matthew made good money. And yet I believe God was, was showing him that his money was still leaving him very unfulfilled. He was probably wrestling with, where is my life going here? Everyone hates me. Sure, I got all kinds of material things, but they're not bringing me any happiness. And he finally begins to hear about this prophet named Jesus of Nazareth. And so I think that Matthew is following Jesus at a distance, kind of keeping an eye on his ministry. What, is, what, did, what did he say in that meeting over there? You know, and so on and so forth. Until the day came when Jesus approached Matthew at the tax booth and said to him, Matthew, come and follow me. Now, here's the deal. If a tax collector ever walked away from that job, they had walked away from it forever. You couldn't become a tax gatherer once you left that office. Why? There's probably a million people lined up behind you who wanted that job. And they figured, if you weren't devoted enough to keep this job, we don't want you. So when Matthew left all those earthly riches to follow Jesus, look, he had counted the cost. And he decided, you know, following Christ... And gaining the riches that he was offering was far better than any riches this world had to offer. And I'll tell you the truth, I don't think Matthew regrets that decision today. <laughs> now, as you notice, Matthew's gospel starts out with a genealogy. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. I think it's safe to say that <laughs> the genealogies in the Bible, um, they don't excite us or tend to bless us, do they? I think most of us... Uh, tend to just skip over the genealogies in Scripture. I know I do. I just finished rereading First Chronicles in my morning devotions, and the first nine chapters are basically genealogy. And so, you know, you skim to see if there's anything that you can glean from there other than names, but for the most part, you just basically skip over those genealogies because to us, they're, they're unimportant, aren't they? In fact, genealogies to us who are Gentiles, when we read these in the Bible, they're a little irritating. God, why did you have to put the, why do I have to wade through nine chapters of names that mean nothing to me? Why did you put these in your word? These are useless to me. I mean, for a Gentile, we look at that and go, what is this all about, Lord? You could have, you could have condensed this whole deal. Now, if you had just talked to me, Lord, you could have condensed this whole thing by just cutting out these genealogies. See, that's how we think. But that's not how the Jews thought. To the Jew, genealogies were not only important, they were vital. You see, genealogies trace lineages through families and tribes. These were legal documents, folks, which proved property ownership. Remember when we studied Joshua, how God at one point told Joshua to divide up the entire land of promise among the 12 tribes. And then they subdivided it among the families of those tribes. You had to have your legal document, your genealogy, to prove that you own that land. 
That's why it was very important. But genealogies also establish the right of succession. The right of succession is in the case of the priesthood and the monarchy. No man could legally occupy the office of a priest in Israel who could not trace his genealogy back to Aaron, the first high priest, because God said that the family of Aaron would be the priests of Israel. So if you couldn't trace your lineage back to Aaron, you couldn't legally hold the office of a priest in Israel. And you couldn't reign as king in Israel if you could not trace your genealogy back to Solomon and David. So genealogies were very important. Now, why did Matthew write his gospel? To present Jesus as the king of Israel, right? To present Jesus as the king of Israel. We know from scripture that Matthew was also called Levi. Why was he called Levi? I think everyone is pretty much in agreement he was called Levi because he was a Levite. He was of the tribe of Levi. And in Israel, many of the Levites were scribes. Not all, but many. And it was part of the responsibility of a scribe, an official scribe of the state, to copy genealogies, to write genealogies. Now, I'm not suggesting that Matthew was a scribe, but as a Levite, Matthew knew better than most. If you're going to present somebody as the king of Israel, you had better be able to prove, first of all, that they are a, were a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, right? Who was the father of the Jewish people. And secondly, that they were a descendant of David and Solomon, which was the royal line, which meant they had the legal right to be king in Israel. And that's why Matthew starts out his gospel with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Again, Matthew wants to present to Israel Jesus as their king and Messiah. Well, he knows, all right? He knows. If he's going to do that, he first of all needs to prove from Jesus' genealogy, his pedigree, that he can trace his genealogy back to Abraham, because the king of Israel has to be Jewish, right? I gotta first of all prove this guy's a Jew. So I gotta take his genealogy back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. That was first and foremost. Abraham, we know from our study in Galatians on Wednesday night, Abraham became the progenitor of the Jewish people by virtue of a covenant that God made with him that someday he would be the father of a great nation and that through his seed all the nations of the earth would someday be blessed. Now Paul in Galatians 3 picks up on that and goes, look, God didn't promise Abraham, and through your seeds, plural, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. In the sense that he was talking about the Jewish people in general, Paul says, God said to Abraham, and through your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That seed, Paul said, was speaking of Christ or Messiah. That someday the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham. And that through the Messiah, all the families of the earth would be blessed. How? Because salvation would be available to all the families of the earth who would come to Jesus by faith. Well, in verse 2 we read, Abraham begot Isaac. Now, Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. We all know that Ishmael was a work of the flesh. Abraham tried to help God out. God had promised him a son. Thirteen years passed, no son. I'm going to help God out. And the result was Ishmael. Okay, a work of the flesh. Twelve years later, 25 years after the promise God gave to Abraham, here is the son God promised, Isaac. And God said to Abraham, 
In Isaac shall thy seed be called. In other words, it's through Isaac, not Ishmael, that the messianic and the royal line will descend. So Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. We know that Jacob had 12 sons. They became eventually the fathers of the 12 tribes. We also know that when Jacob was on his deathbed, in Genesis chapter 49, he called all of his sons around his bed. He musters up enough strength to sit up and he leans on his staff. He's an old shepherd. And there he goes around the bed and he prophesies over each of his 12 sons. You can read about that again in Genesis 49. When he comes to his fourth son, Judah, we read in verse 8, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. The word Judah actually means praise, by the way. Why are your brothers going to praise you? Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him, to Shiloh, shall be the, the obedience of the people. The word Shiloh is a messianic term and literally means until he comes to whom it belongs. It was a prophecy that through Judah would come the Messiah someday. The one who God promised would someday rule over the face of the entire earth uh, until he comes to who it belongs, to who what belongs. The rule of the entire world, right? Now we know that Jesus is coming twice. He's coming the second time to rule, right? He came the first time to suffer and die. But his right to rule was established at his first coming by virtue of the fact he was born of the Messianic line. We'll talk more about that in a second. It says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. The scepter is the symbol of a sovereign nation and is emblematic of the right to impose capital punishment by that sovereign nation on those whose crimes warrant it as any sovereign nation has the right to do. The scepter speaks of a nation's right to govern itself. It speaks of an independent, sovereign nation. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, the right of capital punishment was removed from Israel by the Romans in 6 AD. 6 AD, the scepter, you might say, was removed. When it was removed by the Romans, the rabbis tore their clothes, they put ashes on their heads, and they walked through the streets of Jerusalem weeping and wailing because in their mind, the word of God had failed. Can you imagine that? The word of God has failed. The scepter has departed from Judah and Shiloh, the Messiah, has not yet come. What they didn't realize at that time was that 70 miles to the north in the town of Nazareth, there was living with his mother and stepfather a young boy named Jesus. See, the word of God had not failed. The word of God never fails. Shiloh had come before the scepter had departed from Judah. We'll continue with verse 3, and I'm not going to read all these names, okay, but I'm going to give you a little flavor. Verse 3, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot 
Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Solomon. You know, I don't know why we skip over these. It's riveting reading. Why do we skip over these genealogies like that? I don't know. Verse 5, Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Remember what we said, Matthew wants to present Jesus as the king of Israel. So first of all, he's got to prove he's a Jew. He does that by tracing his genealogy back to Abraham. All right, he's Jewish. Well, that doesn't mean he has the right, the legal right to rule as king. All right, now Matthew has to prove he's of the royal line. So that's what he does. He traces his genealogy from David through Solomon, the royal line, proving that Jesus Christ has the, the legal right to rule as king in Israel. And all that's well and fine, right? We understand where he's going. Until we get to one of David's descendants, Jeconiah, in verse 11, also known as Coniah, also known as Jehoiakim. You know, it's hard enough to, to memorize one of these names. They've got to have four and five. But if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll read how Jeconiah is sometimes called Coniah or Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim was so evil that God cursed him and his descendants and said that no descendant of his would ever sit upon the throne of David. Now you've got to understand the magnitude of that, of that curse. I'm convinced at that point the devil must have thrown a party. What kind of a party does the devil throw? I don't know. Maybe it was a Halloween party. Who knows? <laughs> he had a celebration. Why? Because he thought he'd won. You've got to see all of history in one regard as the cosmic battle between the devil and the Lord. God fulfilling his promises and the devil trying at every step of the way to thwart the promises of God. But he thought he had won this time. How? The royal line had been cursed. The Messiah could not rule as king because God had said that no descendant of Jehoiakim, the royal line, would ever sit upon the throne of David. I'm sure Satan at that point said, check me. Got him. Got him. I've won. Curse the royal line. That's it. No Messiah means no king is coming. No king means no kingdom is coming. No kingdom means nobody's going to dethrone me. Nobody's going to, to take my throne away. I'm going to rule forever as God of this world. Remember that part of Jesus' mission in coming to the earth was not just to secure our salvation. It was to take the world back from the usurper. From the devil. In the Garden of Eden, God gave it to Adam and Eve, right? To tend and watch over. It was their, the property of mankind. When they sinned against God, they turned it over to the devil who became the God of this world. And he introduced the injustice, the evil, the sickness, the disease, and so on. Part of Jesus' mission was to come to the earth and to take back what Satan had stolen, basically. You remember when Satan tried to tempt Jesus? Remember in the wilderness? Three different times he tempted him. One time, I think it was the last time, he took him up to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment's time, said, all these are mine, I can give them to whoever I will, I'll give them to you if you bow down and worship me. Look, I know why you've come. You've come to take back all the kingdoms of the earth. Hey, look, don't go to the cross, I'll give them to you. Just bow down and worship me. Interesting, when Satan said, all these kingdoms belong to me, I can give them to whoever I will, give them to you if you'll bow down and worship me. Jesus didn't say, Satan, you dirty, rotten liar. You don't own the kingdoms of the... No, Satan, Jesus didn't contest that. He knew that Satan was the God of this world. 
And he knew why, Jesus knew why he had come. He had come to not only die for our sins and gather a people that wanted to live in a new kingdom, but to take back this world to establish that kingdom someday. And that kingdom is coming soon. So I'm sure Satan threw a party, all right? I've won, you know? However, the devil celebrated his victory a little too quickly as he tends to do. You see, as we progress through the genealogy of Jesus, as recorded here by Matthew, we read in verse 16, And Jacob begot Joseph, listen, the husband of Mary, not the father of Jesus. The husband of Mary to whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. You see, Jesus was born of Mary, but not of Joseph. Joseph was his stepfather, but his real father was God the Father. This means, folks, that the blood curse placed on Jehoiakim and his descendants, a blood curse that Joseph bore because he was a flesh and blood descendant of Jehoiakim, that blood curse was not transferred to Jesus because Jesus was not a son of Joseph. The blood of Joseph was not in the veins of Jesus Christ. Jesus was a blood descendant of Mary, right? Mary. Now, here's the thing. We know that Matthew presents a genealogy of Jesus here in chapter 1. If you go into Luke's gospel, you don't have to turn there. In chapter 3, Luke presents a genealogy of Jesus. They don't really match. And critics have jumped on that for a long time to say the Bible can't be trusted. The Bible is full of errors. Look it. you got a genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, one in Luke that don't even match. How can you Christians begin to think this Bible, this book, is inspired by God? Again, writing off, right? Thinking that they have won the debate. It's like Satan, you know? Declaring his victory, not reading the fine print, really. If you study the two genealogies, they're different for a reason. Matthew wants to present Jesus as the Messiah, the King of Israel, and he has to trace his genealogy from Abraham through David and through David's son Solomon and down through the royal line to prove that Jesus Christ had the royal right, the legal right to rule. You said, wait a minute. You just said Joseph was a descendant of the royal line. Jehoiakim and his descendants were cursed. How could Jesus legally rule in Israel as king if he comes from a cursed line? That's because the blood curse didn't pass on to Jesus. He was the adopted son of Joseph. And in Jewish law, the adopted son or daughter has all the rights of the adopting father. Jesus Christ, through his stepfather, who adopted him, received the legal right to rule as king in Israel. But he received the blood of David through his mother Mary. Because when you look at the genealogy in, Mark, in Luke's gospel, and Luke's trying to focus on Jesus' humanity, that he's the son of man. He takes his genealogy of Jesus back to the first man, Adam. But then as he comes through, he comes to David. Pretty much now you've got, you know, David. They both touch on David. But instead of going through Solomon, the royal line, Luke takes us down through another son of David, Nathan, all the way down to Mary. See, Mary was also a descendant of David but not of the royal line. So the curse did not pass along to Mary's relatives. I don't want to get into this because it's a little confusing. Well, how come, how could Jesus be born sinless when he was born of Mary? Mary was a sinner. Because the sin only passed down through the Father. I don't get that. Well, it's just the way it is. Adam was the federal head of the human race. So the sin always passed from the Father to the children. 
But Jesus didn't have an earthly father. His father was God the Father. That's why he could be born of a human woman, supernaturally through the seed of God being implanted in her womb by the Holy Spirit without any physical contact. And he could be born the sinless Son of God. The idea is this, folks, and I love the way the Lord works. It's so brilliant. You know, you read the Bible and you come to, you understand some of these things, and you think, how could anybody deny the supernatural origin of this book? It is absolutely mind-blowing that Jesus Christ, it says, is of the house and the lineage of David. Through Mary, he received the blood of David. Through Joseph, his adopted father, he received the legal right to rule. That's why it's said of Christ, he is of the house and the lineage of David. The house and the lineage. He received his lineage through Mary, his mother. The house of David, well, that was the house of royalty, which he received the right to rule through Joseph. God got to run his own blood curse. And I'm sure when Satan figured this out, when Jesus was born, he's like, Ford it again, you know. <laughs> you know, for anyone to think they can beat God, be victorious over God, and yet you should read Revelation 19. That's exactly what the whole world is going to do someday. The whole world apart from Christ. All the unbelievers someday in the Antichrist are going to go to war against God. Think that they can beat God. And when Jesus comes back from heaven riding as the white horse and all of us who have been raptured are riding with him back to the earth to establish his kingdom, they gather for war in the valley of Megiddo. And I can't even imagine this. What do you got? You got your tanks? You got your Apache helicopters? You got your surface-to-air missiles? What do you got? You think you're going to go to war against the Lord and win. Of course, he who sits in the heavens, Psalm 2, shall laugh. He shall hold them in derision, mock them for the stupidity. You see, when people give themselves over to the devil to do his will, they become corrupted in their thinking, as we're seeing today. All right, well, I think that was interesting. I don't know, maybe you don't. I, I think stuff like that's interesting, all right? Anyway, let's bring this to a close. Practically speaking, and I was thinking about this, and you may, have, you may have come up with other things, but let me just tell you this. Practically speaking, what does the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is the most important genealogy, I think we would agree, the most important genealogy in the history of the world, what practical lessons can the genealogy of Jesus Christ teach us? Well, first of all, I think it teaches us that God keeps his promises, Right? Do you realize that 2,000 years before God promised Abraham Messiah was going to come from his own loins? 2,000 years before that, in the Garden of Eden, when man first sinned against the Lord and ate the forbidden fruit, God in Genesis 3.15 promised that someday he was going to send a Redeemer, a Messiah, who would fix the mess we got ourselves into. Aren't, you, aren't we all grateful to that? that? That the Lord didn't say to Adam and Eve, Oh, tough break. Well, you know, I tried. You know what I mean? I had a lot of good plans for you guys. You blew it, though. You ch all right, well, good luck with all that. I'm going to go over here to the other galaxy and try again with a different planet. No, I mean, I'm so thankful the Lord said to Adam and Eve, as soon as they blew it, someday, someday, I'm going to send a redeemer. The serpent, the devil's going to bite his heel, but he's going to crush the devil's head. Ultimately, he's going to be victorious. It's going to seem at one point the devil has won on the cross, Again, the councils of hell probably rejoiced. 
When Jesus hung on that cross, Paul said, if, if the gods of this world, the demons, had only known what God's plan was, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. They played right into God. God says, this, we can't win, you know, and frustrated and everything. But the devil keeps overplaying his hand, and God keeps just reeling him in, you know. But even in the garden, 4,000 years before the birth of Christ, God promised a Redeemer would come. 2,000 years before Christ was born, he promised that same thing to Abraham. And then through Isaac. And then he promised it to Jacob. And then to Judah. And then to David. And then to Solomon. And God kept reaffirming this promise all through the Messianic line, even when things looked pretty black at times. Even when Jehoiakim blew it. And the Jews probably figured, this is it. Messiah will never be born now. How big is your God to think the devil could ever win against the Lord? So I believe that God teaches us here that he is a God who keeps his promises. And that is very precious truth, especially for us living in these troubled times. Because God has given many of us, given all of us who are Christians, many great and precious promises. And as things get tougher and tougher, folks, believe me, you're going to need to cling to those promises. And you're going to need to come to terms with the fact, is my God faithful or is he not faithful? Do I believe he is faithful to do what he has promised, to provide my needs, to be with me always even to the end of the age, no matter how black things look outwardly? Do I really believe that? You know, Habakkuk didn't really believe that until the end of his little book where God taught him some lessons in faith. You can read the last few verses of Habakkuk or Habakkuk or Charlie, whatever you want to call him, right? <laughs> and I love that statement of faith. And I'll paraphrase. He says, look, if I go outside and I see that every visible form of substance and sustenance has been removed, if the fields are empty, if there's no crops in the barns, if all the animals are gone, and there's no way I can see that God is going to take care of us and provide for us. I know that my God is faithful. I don't know how he's going to do it. But I know he's going to do it because he's promised me. He's going to take care of me and my family. Get a cling to that, folks. Number two, I think the genealogy of Jesus Christ teaches us that the sinfulness of man, listen, never thwarts the purposes of God. The sinfulness of man never thwarts the purposes of God. Again, Jehoiakim, devil thought he had won. He had thwarted the purposes of God by using an evil character named Jehoiakim. God proved he didn't thwart the purposes of God at all. In fact, he played right into God's hands. We're living in an evil day, aren't we? I don't know about you, but I've got to turn off the news once in a while. I start fretting, okay? The very thing the Bible says in Psalm 37 not to do as a child of God, I start fretting. You know, I get overwhelmed by the evil. Almost the anarchy against the law of God, you know? Just the, the sin being flaunted everywhere. I start to fret. And as I read Psalm 37, and I read it periodically, by the way, where God says, don't fret because of evildoers. Hey, I'm on the throne. Their day is coming. Their day is coming. When Jesus comes back, he's going to judge all those rebels who refuse to bow the knee to Christ and to submit to his authority in their lives. And Jesus is going to establish a kingdom on the earth. And God says someday, when Jesus establishes that kingdom, the, the uh, meek shall inherit the earth. And you're going to look for evildoers in those days. 
You're not going to find them because they're going to all be gone. So that day is coming, right? No matter how bad it looks right now, guys, our God's on the throne. And the devil is simply playing into the hands of God. God's purposes are sure and will be carried out. Now, when you talk about individual, us individually, how does this work? Well, I believe that even the evil people do to you, you're a Christian, even the evil that others do to you, to try to thwart God's purposes in your life, to try to keep you from having God's best. And there's Jacobs everywhere, aren't there? Heel catchers, people that try to trip you up to get in front of you. You know, don't, um, I think it was the Lord Jesus who said, don't, don't resist an evil person. I mean, I'm, I'm, Billy, don't, don't misunderstand. Don't resist somebody who's constantly trying to get the best of you, is the idea. Okay, I mean, it doesn't mean if you come home and somebody's robbing your house and get, you're carrying your big screen out, to, out of the house, you, you hand them your VCR. That's not what we're saying. Don't resist an evil person. Not like that. But a person who's out to get you, out to, to discredit you, out to get in front of you and, and, and lie about you to gain the promotion or whatever, don't resist them. You know why? Because as God told us through Joseph, remember Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, whose brothers were jealous of him, sold him into slavery, and he wound up in Egypt, Remember? And how and God rose, raised him up to a, a level of prime minister, right? And when his brothers, this is years down the road now, his brothers finally came to Egypt looking for grain, famine in the land. Joseph revealed himself eventually. And now his brothers were terrified because they felt that now he's going to get back at us, right? He's going to kill us now. And Joseph called his, old, his big brothers around him and said, Look, what you did to me was wrong. You meant evil to me. But God meant it for good. Hey, look, I don't worry about what people try to say about me or how they try to you know, discredit me. or, or I, I don't worry about that. I just let the Lord take care of it. I have found a long time ago, if you run around trying to defend yourself, God will let you. I would much rather God be my defender. So this teaches us the sinfulness of man never thwarts the purposes of God. And finally, the genealogy of Jesus Christ teaches us that God is no respecter of persons. And that he invites all people, all people, to be a part of his family, no matter who they are, no matter what race they belong to, uh, no matter what they have done in their past. God is inviting all to be a part of his family. He's no respecter of persons. You say, well, wait a minute. Uh, how did you get that out of these verses? Well, let me show you this. There's something about this genealogy if you're Jewish, is astonishing. First of all, the genealogy of Jesus Christ contains the names of women. Women. Now, if you're a rabbi, that's shocking. That's shocking. They, they really didn't include the names of women in Jewish, in Jewish genealogies. I mean, even in Eastern genealogies in general, the names of women were very rare in a genealogy. But especially one when you're talking about the genealogy of the Messiah. Matthew, you're presenting to us the genealogy of the Messiah, and you've got four women in the genealogy? And those four women were Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, whose name is not mentioned directly. She's kind of indirectly mentioned, as it says, and David begot Solomon through her who had been wife of Uriah, verse 6, that's Bathsheba. So, you know, it's astonishing that Jesus' genealogy contains the names of women. 
But when you realize who these women were, it moves from astonishing to absolutely flat-out shocking, scandalizing, okay? Because two of them were harlots, Tamar and Rahab. One committed adultery, Bathsheba, and two were Gentiles, Rahab and Ruth. Now, I don't know about you, but I see the hand of God in this. I really do. I see how that God, the Holy Spirit, who inspired Matthew to write this genealogy and had him include the names of these four women in Jesus' genealogy was God's way of saying, I am no respecter of persons. The Messiah that I send to this world is not going to be just for the good people or the Jews or the moral or the religious. He is going to be a Messiah, a Savior for the whole human race. Whether you're a woman whether you have had a shady past, whether you've been a model citizen, it doesn't matter because God is no respecter of persons and invites all to come and be a member of his family by receiving his son, Jesus Christ. You realize, of course, that the genealogy of Jesus Christ is not over with. It's being written today still because all the names in the genealogy of Jesus Christ are members of his family. If you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are now a member of the family of God, and your name has been penciled in. Well, maybe not penciled in, written with indelible ink in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which you are born into when you give your heart to Christ. You become a member of the family of God. That's what being born again is all about. You have been born into now the family of God through your faith in Jesus Christ. So I don't know about you, but I thought... We've got to spend a little time on genealogies. I mean, this genealogy is phenomenal, right? Uh, We've got to lay a little foundation. So in this genealogy, as Matthew presents it, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we see that Jesus Christ clearly has the right to be king of Israel. Next week, God willing, as we look at verse 18 through 25 of chapter 1, we'll see that God now announces or prophesies to a man named Joseph who would become the stepfather of Jesus Christ that God's plan now was about to come to fruition. Paul said in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Eternity and time intersected at the incarnation. And so we'll study that a little bit more next time. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, even in the genealogies, if we'll take the time to maybe just dig a little bit, we will find treasures that go beyond our wildest imagination. Lord, we're so thankful that you are on the throne. You're sovereign. You are all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving. You make even the wrath of man to praise you. No one can thwart your purposes. Everything you have decreed, everything you have purposed will come to pass. And we take great comfort in that, Lord, knowing that even now the wicked seem to overrun this world and things look, are going from bad to worse. Things are looking more and more black and desperate and hopeless. And yet as children of God, we know there is always hope in you. We know, Lord, that no matter how bad things get in this world, our Savior is coming, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to establish a kingdom that will never end a kingdom of peace and righteousness and joy in the Holy Spirit, a kingdom, Lord, where you will reign forever from Jerusalem 
a kingdom that will never end, a kingdom that will have no injustice, no violence, no crime, no corruption, no bribes, a kingdom where we will all be family, where we can leave our doors unlocked and be unafraid, a place where every man will sit under his own fig tree and study and learn war no more because you will take all the swords and spears and and, uh, beat them into pruning hooks and plowshares. We just praise you, Lord. We look forward to that day, all because Jesus came. The one promised so many years ago has come, has died, risen, ascended back to the Father, and is coming again someday soon to judge the living and the dead and to establish a kingdom that will never end. And so, Lord, like John the Apostle, we cry, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.